where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. Sometimes I see her as a reincarnation of a Buddhist monk, and I, I know that sounds kind of hilarious, but she really has this quiet, wonderful, strong energy that I really appreciate. And at the same time, she's very caring and tough, and, and that's a wonderful combination to have in a professor. It can be really hard to get your work into a museum and that part of the reason like she works so hard and that she pushes herself getting her work into a museum is so that other artists and other emerging artists can get their work into the museum because ceramics isn't something that has been in museums for really all that long. And her just saying that and explaining that really showed me that to also help the field in general. You just heard the voices of Brooke Armstrong and Anna Limnitzer, graduate students in UM's MFA in Visual Arts, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Julia Galloway. Julia is in her 20th year as a professor of art at the University of Montana, teaching and practicing her specialty, ceramics, while directing a dynamic program made up of visual artists in a range of media. She has done incredible work in support of the professional development of graduate students in visual arts, helping the next generation of visual artists explore their art, refine their practice, and open up paths to integrate into the larger world of art. And she herself is an excellent role model. She has developed a thriving artistic practice with a national reputation and devoted collectors. Every episode, we ask our guests to read a poem or a short passage from literature about rivers. Julia has chosen a passage from Toni Morrison's magisterial novel, Beloved. You'll hear her read it And then we launch our conversation, which flows through her artistic journey, how she chose her craft, how she develops her artistic ideas, and how she first experienced Montana. We also discuss her ceramic series, The Endangered Species Project. She is producing an urn to commemorate all of North America's endangered species, a powerful lens to think about loss, grief, and to stimulate thinking on what we hominids need to do to stave off further species death. Art opens paths for thought, experience, and cultural change. We are delighted to share Julia's story with listeners who need that confirmation of why art matters. Welcome to Confluence, where we aspire to the certainty of a riverbank in the evening. At the River Clarion by Mary Oliver. I don't know who God is exactly, but I'll tell you this. I was sitting in the river named Clarion, on a water splash stone, and all afternoon I listened to the voices of the river talking. Whenever the water struck a stone, it had something to say, in the water itself, and even the mosses trailing under the water. And slowly, very slowly, it became clear to me what they were saying. Said the river, I am part of this holiness. And I too, said the stone, and I too, whispered the moss beneath the water. I'd been to the river before, a few times. Don't blame the river that nothing happens quickly. You don't hear such voices in an hour or a day. You don't hear them at all if selfhood has stuffed your ears. It's difficult to hear anything anyways through all the traffic and the ambition. Welcome to Confluence, Julia. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and we've been trying to make this happen for a bit, and you know, you've had a busy life, so have I. So I'm really, really happy this finally kind of took place. You're such a great spirit, and the campus has just been so enriched by your art. And me in particular, as, as a graduate dean who kind of oversees a big portfolio of things, I love the arts, and it's just great that we have, you know, representation of uh, really powerful artists in the graduate programs there. So we'll talk about that, of course, but we're going to start talking about that Mary Oliver poem that you chose. We've, we, it's the second crack at that poem. Rachel Severson from Psychology also chose it. What, what, why did it jump out for you? There's two things about it specifically. The timing of Mary Oliver, I enjoy reading. How things are spaced out, how she puts words together uh, feels very natural to me. So just the sort of formalistic part of her writing I enjoy. But specifically the poem itself is this part where it says, I've been to the river before a few times. Don't blame the river that nothing happens quickly. And I think the creative process for me is actually pretty slow, and it takes time, and you can't push it, right? The creative practice in making does not happen quickly. Sometimes there's a flash of inspiration, right, or something like that. But mostly it's sort of a slow-moving, sort of water-runs-deep, slow-moving sort of process. And I also loved this part at the end where it says... You don't hear them all if the cell phone has stuffed your ears. It's difficult to hear anything through all the traffic and the ambition. the ambition. And I just think that when there's a lot of noise, sort of outside noise or inside noise, meaning internal sort of wrestle, that it's hard to sort of hear the uh, sort of the voice of what you're making or the clarity of your idea. So I think that there's something about that last sentence that really s- stuck with me. Yeah, and and it's and she's listening attentively to the voices that are coming from the outside too, and and so that that opening line is so casual. Mm-hmm. It's taking on a huge topic very casually, and then reversing its its course. And you know, we're listening to the stones and the, all the small things that add up to whatever in Mary Oliver's universe would be the divine, right? right. It, it's it's accumulation of all of that. All that, and all that stuff is outside the self. It's not inside the self. It's like listening to the world as you take it in. Right. And I love that connection to your creative process. I mean, uh, in my world, we're thinking a lot about slowness. Mm-hmm. I, in my teaching, I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Reading has become so fast. Right. Everyone mo- reads everything so fast. Right. We eat fast. We move fast. And now we read fast too. We scan. Mm-hmm. And you can't scan mm-hmm. a poem like this. You know, you have to feel it in its time. Mm-hmm. You, you have to feel it in its own rhythm and its own pace. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I love that connection to your work process too, that the, on the other side of it is a creative process that accumulates over time rather than being something. Like you said, there might be a flash of inspiration, but then you got to go do the thing. Right. So yeah. th- that connects in a lot of ways with, and you know, we have so much we're going to talk about. It connects in a lot of ways to this recent project of yours. I hate to jump right to that, sure, no problem. but we're going to back up later and get a little bit more of a biography, but it just connects so directly. So the Endangered Species Project, you've been working on it now for quite a few years, and I've seen some of that work, including just recently when I saw you at the Radius Gallery, you had a couple pieces there. Tell us about how that work unfolded. What, 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 I mean, obviously, there, what are the ideas that underlie it? There's some obvious things that I think if people know your work would know, but maybe a listener who's never heard of this project, you know, what are the core ideas that are driving it? Sure, sure. So I think that part of my role in the uh, field of contemporary art, ceramics, and pottery is to push the boundaries that exist in the field. And that 
has looked a lot of different ways over time. And a lot of the things that I've sort of pushed for, which was sort of more interesting work, more depth, more educate, you know, things like that, have really come to fruition in the field in a fabulous way. Mm. And recently I turned 50, and when I turned 50, I thought I wanted to sort of shift my focus a little bit away from me and more onto some larger ideas. And for quite some time now, I've been very worried about the environment. Sure. Who could not be. Right. right? right. If you're paying attention, you right. better be worried. You better be worried. And so I thought quite long about how to bring attention to that using the tools that I know. So I thought about this project really came from remembering when I saw the AIDS quilt. Mm. Do you know? Oh, and gosh, yes. how it was so striking the, the AIDS quilt made something that was mostly invisible to a lot of America at that time, right? AIDS was so located in just a couple areas that very early in that quite tragic time, people didn't realize sort of what was happening. And then when ACT UP got involved with it and made uh, AIDS visible through something like the Names Project, the AIDS quilt, it really uh, showed loss. And the power of making something invisible visible was just undeniable. That that is such a great connection. I I mean that's makes sense to me that that was part of your inspiration because part of the connection there is the physical materiality of that form yeah. that the quilt is rooted in the home. I mean part of what that project did was show you the humanity behind these right. these people and and you know people are suffering and it, you say it makes it visible, but it also brings this material object that, that is common and universal across the culture and repurposes it for this, for this you know, display of humanity. That's, that's really beautiful, actually. Right. So the quilt part of it, yeah, you nailed it completely. The quilt part of it is about keeping the human in it, right? So I think when I, so I first started, it took a while to kind of get up to speed with this, but now I'm working on making urns for the uh, endangered species of the continent of the United States. And the urns are the scale of a for a human, for yep. human ashes. Yeah. So that was another way of sort of bringing the human in and getting the human um, present in this exhibition. We're a little, uh, you know, it's not any news to say humans are a little narcissistic. So mm -hmm. the human urn, you know, is, is a way of connecting to that. So so the forms for, the, this is going to be like this throughout this podcast, sure. right, that we're going to talk about a visual object sure. a little bit. But, um, you know, the form of them, you know, they're very conventional, classic urn structures. Uh, I don't know, did you have a particular you know, Greek model or model for the urn itself when you built them? I, I did. I, I looked at a lot of contemporary urns, and I wanted them to be identifiable immediately. I didn't want the shape of the object to be leading you in other directions. Gotcha. Right? So yeah. it's sort of a cross between a classic American urn and then sort of it has a little bit of an Asian influence in its shape. That's really where it's from. And, you know, I went to the Missoula Crematorium and met with them and looked at all their urns and, yeah. um, you know, did some research about what urns look like. I didn't want you to get confused about covered jar or vase or whatever. Right. I wanted it to be pretty clear. Clear that it was an urn. Yeah. And that that's there also in the starkness of the material, though. Some urns might get, you know, lacquer and decoration, but you have this very clear ceramic urn. Yeah. One of the things I love about the project is, like death itself, there's this universal structure, right. but then the detail, which is quite subtle, you kind of have to go approach the urn to see the detail is where each individual species is then brought to the surface. And that so perfectly captures this sort of nexus in, right. in death between this universal thing that we all experience, but then we all only actually have our own single life and our only single death. And so the, the, the project itself aesthetically captures that. Right. 
Great. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of that, uh, the, the urns are extremely carved with extreme detail yeah. and uh, anatomically correct, and they, what I hope is show off the beauty of each species. Right. And I'm hoping that that skill and the sort of beauty of the species will sort of seduce the viewer to be drawn in, and then the viewer is already sort of committed as they're looking to it. And then somehow through that, right, by drawing the viewer in closer, closer, closer as they see the details, by then I really have got them uh, paying attention to this problem. Yeah, and part of Danger Species of North America also opens up just a massive scale and scope. So again, simple idea, core idea, but now you've got to do research and you've got to plunge into. Yeah. And so so tell me about that process. How are you going about the process? How are you tackling? How do we capture all of these endangered species? Well, sadly, a little bit clumsily at first. But you know, that's uh, such a different wa- warehouse. And I'm, I am not a scientist at all in any way. I'm a potter and an artist. So I just looked up the U.S. Fish and Wildlife website and typed in endangered and started to make a list of all these species. And then I learned that there's, you know, extinct, endangered, and recovered, and threatened. You know, there's different categories and that states have one list and the national is another list. What was important to me was to be researching and presenting the species that were most important. So I didn't do Hawaii because I'm focused on North America and there's a lot of quite exotic species in Hawaii. Mm. And that kind of just leads me off in another direction. So I'm interested in the grub and the mussel and that little teeny plant as opposed to, you know, the white rhino or a tiger from another country. Those are very, very important. But I feel like um, ultimately regionalism is is very effective with yeah. endangered species. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that I was including like that little grub that you played with in the river when you were a kid or those mussels that you used to dig up or that frog, you know, those sort of species that were really close to home. Yeah. And that's, so that's really became the focus of researching. And it really, I just looked at that website for days and days and days and days. Yeah. And then in terms of process, you're moving regionally and you're thinking about capturing a particular region at a time. Sort of. Honestly, I'm working alphabetically right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just finishing the Through letter. the states. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. So I'm working on the national list and I'm, yeah. and I'm moving alphabetically. And where are we in the alphabet? The letter E. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I love these kinds of projects <laughs> because, you know, you got to do it in a certain way, right? You have to yeah. choose a methodology, and but the ambition and scope of it is really dramatic, right? You'll be doing this for a while. Oh, I think four more years. Yeah. 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 Oh, four, you think four and you'll, you'll get enough of them done. You'll, you'll... I'm, I'm hoping so. Yeah. I'm hoping so. I mean, I think that it's interesting because I'm doing extinct and I'm also doing recovered. I think it's so important to include the recovered species mm-hmm. and probably in displaying them, maybe those would be separated a little bit. So we could see that there is some hope that it's not always a one-way journey once a species hits that list. Yeah. Well, and so this is, you know, that, that exact topic is where it kind of intersects with my own work. You know, I, I work on grief and mourning rituals and, and medieval mm-hmm. culture. And when I teach my death and literature class, we always take on questions of contemporary, what's called echo melancholia. A lot of our younger folks, especially the, the you know, 18 to 25 year old group, 
they, they're wearing around a burden. They're carrying it around with them. They, they have this sense that things aren't right in the world in general, right? But it's specifically about the environment. And this term, echo melancholia, kind of captures that sense, that sensibility that something's not right. So echo, like you're they're putting it out ecological, and it's back. No, ecological, no, e- okay. ecological, eco. I should say eco, right? Eco melancholia. So, so kind of a melancholy for the failure of our ecological systems and their mm-hmm. collapse. You know, grieving and mourning in in our human culture in America is also kind of a repressed phenomenon, right? In other words, there's a double repression here that we're not very good at that either. And and so the two might be mapping onto one another in, in an interesting way. That you're what I love about your project is that brings all of that to the surface. Mm-hmm. That the human and the animal processes are both right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just think about an, a normal American household. How many of them, even if they have ashes? Mm-hmm. And they've kept those cremains, that, mm-hmm. that awful uh, neologism that was created by the cremation, crematorium industry. If they, even if they have them, they're very unlikely to display them in the home. That that's, would be likely to be interpreted as kind of maudlin and, right. and over-emotional or something. And so that kind of repression is so systematic in our mm-hmm. culture about death in general. Mm-hmm. But then, so, so what your work does is bring both sides of that mm-hmm. together and bring it to, into mm-hmm. an object, right? That's a place where we can think about both the human repression of our own grief and our own loss, and, um, but then also the, its connection potentially to this world around us, that we're losing species by species. One of the other inspirations for the project was this uh, fabulous ceramic artist named Akio Takamori, mm. lived in Seattle, and he uh, got very sick and was dying, and he had one sort of last show. In the last six months of his life, he was making a body of work, and the show was called Apology and Remorse. Oh, wow. And all of the sculpture in the show or, or paintings in the show was based off of imagery of political figures apologizing. So it had, like, the Chancellor of Germany on his knees in front of The Hague after World War II. And um, I was so moved by, if you had six months left to live, what would your work be about? Yeah. Do you know that was seemed amazing to me that in his last bits of making, it was about apology and remorse. And it made me think quite a bit about what I myself had remorse for or apology about. Mm. And I think that's really when I started to tune into the environment. Because my generation was the one that kind of dropped the ball, like, you know, the endangered species passed in 1972. You know, it was during my lifetime. and Yeah. And uh, we kind of dropped the ball right there. So I think really inspired by his fearlessness to go to such a vulnerable place uh, made room for me, made some room for me to slide quietly into that That's so idea. interesting. Well, and, and ideas clearly inspire your work and push your work. You, you have sort of listed Rachel Carson as one of mm-hmm. your heroes and inspirations. Is that a longstanding thing going back to when you're young or is that more recent, sort of recovering her? I think recovering her, when I first read The Silent Spring, I couldn't really get through it. <laughs> you know, I was a young woman and restless. And so some was the book itself, but a lot of it was this woman stepping up front, pushing the field forward and yep. saying, this is important, we have to look at it. Yep. And then also hearing that, you know, JFK read it and it was very influential to him and he told Nixon to read it. And that's one of the reasons why Nixon signed the Clean Water Act. Mm. And that seemed amazing to me that this one person could push something forward so much. Yeah. And I I liked standing on her shoulders. Yeah. Um, and I think her as much as a scientist and writer, as much as the content in the book. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, yeah, her willingness to kind of put herself right. into a difficult, uncomfortable place right. publicly and pay the price for it, right? right. I mean, there's going to be backlash. Um, yeah. What an, I mean, it's it's got to be up there in the most important five or ten books of yeah. the 20th century, right? Yeah. In terms of the impact it had as it as it rolled along. And and one of the other heroes you list is Toni Morrison. Sure. I mean, that would beloved would have to be on a short list of two or three of the most important novels of the 20th century, right? I mean, such a huge impact. And, you know, we're, we're of the same generation, right? right? And we were talking right as we were getting going about that book coming out. And I, I read it when I was 19 years old. And, I mean, it just blew my brain. I mean, right. you know, what's the root of, your, of Toni Morrison, the, the, you know, the heroism and, and the attraction to her as a figure for you? You know, Toni Morrison said that she wrote the kind of books that she wanted to read because the kind of books she wanted to read didn't exist yet. And as a young artist in the world, especially um, a woman coming up in the field that was still sort of male-dominated by an earlier generation, it made me think that gave me a lot of permission that I could make the work that I wanted to see rather than sort of existing with this, you know, sort of already you know, sort of work that already existed rather than making that better. That quote gave me tons of license to be able to uh, really make what I wanted to make or at least try to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, sometimes those key sentences just get you, right? They just say, okay, you got permission, go. So I think that, and I also just think to hear such a strong uh, woman's voice was so important to me and it gave me just tremendous room to... Sort of harvest my own ideas and my own place in the world, because her place was so clear. Yeah, and also that she, she found this place to stand and then create. Yes, you know, and and that's it's just such a marvel. You know, that's what the great artists do. They kind of remake a world around them. Yeah, yeah, and also sort of how things were so personal and also public at the same time. Just was such an interesting um, place to exist. You know, I'm a potter and I make objects to go in your house, which is a personal, which is like very personal, but I study it in this very large, big way. Do you know? So there was something about mixing all of those things together that was just so, so interesting to me. Mm. And also that the writing is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. And I think sometimes in the, in, the, in the visual arts, sometimes we can get so heavily conceptual, we forget that we might want to look at things, mm-hmm. do you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so for her to make such beautiful writing oh. and saying such profound things just uh, gave me license yeah. to have beauty be important in my work. Well, we kicked around this passage, the famous passage in Beloved, where, where Seth comes to the Ohio River mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. she gives birth. Um, and it's just... Her and this this woman, Amy Denver, who gives right. Seth the idea for the name of the child. But it's so intense, right? I mean, yeah. it was one of the reasons we passed on it. It was like, Ooh, you know, it's a tough yeah. way to start a podcast. Yeah. But but it's such a beautiful passage. It has in it these these lyrical moments threaded in of the blue fern spores floating through the sunlight right. in the evening. And so that's one of those techniques that she has mastered and she's just so brilliant at that as intense as the moment is, it's a gut-wrenching scene, yeah. uh, especially, you know, when you know the larger plot, you know, that we're going to have a, an infanticide. And she's, <clears throat> she's rooted that in a real historical case, but then right. she's given it this very vibrant, you know, lyrical life right in that passage. And I think you have another passage from her that you might want to read. I do. This is a quote from Toni Morrison. You know, they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for the houses in livable acreage. Occasionally, the river floods in these places. Floods. 
is a word they use, but in fact, it is not flooding. It is remembering, remembering where it used to be. All water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Writers are like that, remembering where we were. That valley we ran through and the banks were like and the light was there and the route back to our original place. It is emotional memory, what the nerves and the skin remember as well as how it appears. And the rush of imagination is our flooding. So I think that's very beautiful to think about the root of what was, things change in going back home again. And I think um, when she says writers are like that, remembering what we were. And I think that for myself, as, a, as somebody who makes sort of a traditional craft and pushing the boundaries of what that traditional craft is, I think that I'm constantly in a state of looking backwards and forwards at the same time, how to honor where I'm from and how to push the field forward. So I think there was something in that passage about the Mississippi moving and then coming back, just really, um, you know, I felt a kinship to that passage. That's fantastic. And so to, to do a trite but obvious thing, let's push you back a little bit um, because it's a, it's a direct connection to this river passage. One of your first exhibits, I, I love the titles of your exhibits. One of your first exhibits was Little Confluence. How perfect is that? Here you are on yeah. Confluence, our podcast. It's all coming back around. You're remembering. But tell us about that. Like, where do those little title ideas from? Maybe start with that one. We're going to talk about a couple of them because I love sure, them. Sure, sure. You know, I think the titles of the show help you understand the ideas and the work. And I think that anyway, I'm very interested in people being understand what I'm doing and to sort of understand the ideas and the work and that, that maybe that understanding takes time. It's sort of a beautiful thing about craft is that often since it's domestic, it goes in your house, you uh, spend time with it right? It's really not unlike books in a way, mm. right? That we have these sort of beautiful things around us that um, come to have meaning. When we get them, we have some understanding of them as object. And then as we spend time with them, they become part of our own story. So I had, a, it was one of my very first solo shows after school. It was a big show for me. And it was called Little Confluence because all of the pottery in the show had to do with pouring, and so it was sauce boats or oil ewers or pitchers or teapots. or and uh, But uh, it wasn't big confluence. It was little confluence. There was a real intimacy to those objects. Yeah. And so it seemed like just a perfect way of getting that idea of things coming together. I love that, I mean, too, but just because, again, the scale of a, of a river confluence mm-hmm. is brought into the home as the small thing that yeah. echoes the bigger thing, you know, that things are pouring together. Yeah. So some of the other ones that I loved, more leaf scythe and bray. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I love, in general, I love art that evokes synesthesia, but that that one, you know, because the set, you don't think of a visual object, especially a material object as, as sonic, but then that's the title of the show. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. That's a quote from Toni Morrison from Jazz. Yeah. And it said, uh, the full quote is, their ecstasy was more leaf scythe than bray, and the body was the vehicle and not the point. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I think, I know, right? Yeah. Oh, come on. Um, I think that um, there's something about the body could be being the vehicle and not the point that, to me, completely embraces pottery. Mm. So the cup is the vehicle, but the point is to have a moment where you're taking a nourishment or just a pause or sort of the beauty of that, giving yourself uh, your daily meal. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, there was such a perfect lineup yeah. in that and also just the passion. So the show the would have had sentence. that full sentence, but the title is the sound side of it, not the right. vehicle side of it. I love that. So the thing that's that you're they're gonna go and experience is the body, right? The the, the body as a vehicle for a set of ideas. Right. That's, you got it. That's that's beautiful. Well Morse's efflorescence. 
You want to talk about that one? Sure. I mean, that was a little bit of an odd show, but it was a show that I had up in Nova Scotia with a, all of the work was made in a studio that was closing down. In that studio, many, many very inspiring artists had come through that studio. And so I was, and so a lot of the work was geared with those artists in mind. So quoting something from their own work in my work or paying homage to them in that show. So the show was visually kind of wild because there was a lot of sort of quoting in it. But that's sort of where the title came from was pulling these things together and kind of the great energy that came out of it. Fantastic. Well, and this is maybe the funnest, most whimsical one you had a show called A Very, Very, Very Fine House, yeah. uh, which, you know, people of a certain generation, maybe the younger ones won't immediately cap that, capture that, but it's the Our House song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. What was going on it's there? Very, so it's very interesting, actually, that show. It was on a website that the images were laid out in a very specific way. Mm. yard and the outside of my house and then as you start to scroll down um, the images on the pottery you move into the living room and there's images of the living room and all the objects in the living room and the books and the, and my dog and, and then you as you scroll down further you move into the kitchen and then you move into and so slowly as you're sort of scrolling through this website you're moving into my house gotcha and, and the, again into more and more intimate yes. space like you're realizing that you're coming into the home just as you were talking about bringing the work into the home and the pots get smaller. So the first outside images are these huge showy vases. And by the time you've sort of gotten into the kitchen, you're on a teapot. And then by the time you get to the bedroom, you're on a sugar bowl. And so I was using the setup or the structure of the website as a visual gallery. Yeah. And uh, So that drove it, not the song. The song kind of rode up on top of that. Well, I think that I wouldn't have gotten to my house without the song. <laughs> right? right? So, so I, I think, think these, these things, things sort of come, come together. together like, like um, you know, ideas develop slowly over time. Yeah, yeah. So what is that song again? Maybe you could sing the, the chorus for it. Very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so hard. Something like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think uh, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the show, this couldn't be like a, a cooler way of thinking about your history, right? We're, we're talking about... You sh- each show kind of has this set of ideas that drive it and personal experiences that drive it. So you're actually telling your story that way, right? And and one of the culminating moments for standpoint of University of Montana is this Archie Bray Fellowship that you got. Now, not too many, pe- not enough people probably in Montana know about the Archie Bray. So why don't you talk a little bit about why that was appealing for you to apply and what your experience was there and how that kind of brought you to Montana. You bet. So the Archie Bray Foundation is a art center in Helena, Montana, and originally it was a block of clay, and that would last your whole semester. As clay sort of moved into a larger art medium, people wanted to use more and more material. So eventually working in a brickyard made sense because you had these huge, huge amounts of clay, and so they started this residency program. And it was very early in the residency game, and uh, it was a very, very good residency. And now over time, now it's just one of the most fabulous residencies, I would say, probably in the world. I mean, there's a lot of places to go, but there's something about the history of that sort of starting in this industrial way and then this great art kind of being birthed out of it. And it's really where abstract expressionism in ceramics started. So there's something about that abundance 
that makes that a very special place to work. So I did a residency in there after graduate school, and uh, there was there's there's the I hadn't been to Montana before, and sort of arriving here where there was so much space. I just felt like anything was possible, mm. and it just allowed me to ferociously, ferociously um, develop my ideas with incredible vigor and just make lots of work and really establish myself in the field and give me confidence to be an artist in the world. So I really, it really happened during those, I was there for two years, that two-year period. And while I was there, I, was, I came to the University of Montana as part of something called Bray Day, where um, uh, residents from the Bray come and demonstrate to our students. And I remembered walking into the studio, the clay studio here is this big open space. And I remember walking in and thinking, oh, man, anything is possible in this room. You could do anything here. So after my residency, I um, taught at the School for American Crafts in New York. Um, for about 10 years, and when a job opened up here, I just remembered that expansive feeling of walking into that old ice skating rink, you know, which is the pottery studio, and I thought, that's where I want to work. I want to work somewhere where it feels like anything's possible. That's incredible. It's so great to hear, and I, and I hope listeners will kind of take inspiration for this because this is one of these areas where, um, you know, we just have a unique strength that maybe – it's uncanny, in fact, right, that a place like University of Montana and, and state of Montana in general, you know, the cliche is we punch way above our weight. I mean, for right. a small, uh, you know, rural agricultural state, it's incredible the art resources that are available here. And the Archie Bray is just a clear part of that in the University of Montana Visual Arts Program, which you've been directing recently. And, and you know, part of what we have to talk about, of course, is that, you know, the podcast is the Graduate School Podcast. Sure. Graduate education, what, you know, what does graduate education in the visual arts look like? And what are you looking for when you're recruiting students? And what are you kind of hoping for them in their time while they're here? I think it helps when students come into work on their graduate studies. It helps that they have some strong technique under their belt so that they're not spending their time here sort of developing basic skills, right? Like we want them to have some skills about how to move the material and how to, you know, get them where they want to go. But I think I'm looking for students that want to question why they make art and what they want to do and what they want to say. And I'm interested in students that are, want to work with other people. You know, graduate school is so much about community. So students who sort of are rooted in talking with their peers and developing a clear sense of self within a group. I think those things are very, very important. You know, the MFA is the terminal degree for artists. There's no PhD in art in the United States. So I think my job is to help them sort of get to the place where they don't need to be in school anymore. Mm -hmm. And I want to get them out in the world sort of quickly so they can bring their visions of um, how to be creative or how they see the world or sort of the culture makers, right? They're a little bit culture makers now. Yeah. I want them to sort of get out there and do that. So my job is to give them tools to do that. Yeah. And I realize that's kind of vague, but I think that it is vague because it's so unique for each student. I was going to say the path each of them takes might be unique, right? right. And so, but you have to – but there are kind of common – you know, experiences and journeys. And, you know, you've talked right. about you yourself kind of struggling with putting your work out there in the gallery system right. and getting involved in it. Now you're you're very successful in that, right? I mean, you, you have these shows and you work with Stephanie Frostad. I, right. I know that we're not going to have a ton of time to get into that, but I, sure. I, I love that you 
your shows with her are so interesting because mm-hmm. you're two powerful female artists working in different visual media, but with some overlap, with some mm-hmm. ideas that overlap. Mm-hmm. But you found that partnership, I'm assuming, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it, it takes work. And so mm-hmm. part of what you're probably advising your students on is how important it is to put yourself out there and do right. that work. Right. And to find parts of their personality that's going to be a good fit, right? Because not everybody's going to just want to go and put their work out in this, in this really big sort of um, visible way. They might be shy, might be a little bit introvert. So maybe then putting their work out online is going to be a better fit. Or working with somebody who's sort of opposite of them will be a better fit. Do you know, I think that, that really embellishing or sort of lifting up who they are and making that stronger and stronger and then awareness of the things that maybe are going to hold them back and sort of having that be sort of conscious so it doesn't trip them up later, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And how do you know with your graduate graduate students, this is, of course, a tough one, but uh, sure. you know, how do you know when they're first ready to come in, right? So, sure. so when they apply, they're giving you an aesthetic statement and you know, their sort of personal vision for their art. And, and how do you know they're kind of ready for that experience? And then how do you know or what are you hoping for on the other end in terms of their autonomy? Are you staying in touch with them? Are you building lifelong relationships with your former students and they're kind of constantly coming back for advice or inspiration? Or Sure. Sure. Well, I think that You know, I love being graduate advisor because I work with all of the graduate students sort of out of my area as well. And that's just so, makes it so interesting, you know. Um, I think that their letter of intent when they're applying is really key. And sort of there's many, many, many good MFA programs. So why here? What is it about Montana? What is it about our school, the structure of our school? What is it about the Northwest? You know, how is that going to feed their work? And uh, is it the professors? Is it the facilities? Is it the landscape? Landscape seems to be very, you know, it's very, very important right now. So I think that all those things sort of feed into if we're a good fit for them. And then, of course, we see images of their artwork, and that just tells us where they are today. Mm. That visually tells us where their feet are on the ground, how their hands are moving, how their brains are thinking. You can see all that in their work. You know, you can kind of read it like a fingerprint. Yeah, yeah. So I think those things. I mean, I think staying in touch with graduate students, um, I think students do a thing where if they haven't been in touch, they feel like they can't be in touch. It's hard, yeah, to right? break that uh, yeah, barrier. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, opposite. Yeah. You know, I want to hear from you anytime. Yeah. You know, I love hearing what you're doing. They also often feel, graduate students often feel like if they're not currently making work, then they're failing. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely not true. We go in and out of being extremely active and then we have quieter times, or they're having families, or they're, you know, so I think that you never really make work again in your life like you do when you're in graduate school, where you have like 24-7 to breathe it, eat it, drink it, you know, and uh, so I think when students leave school, they sort of expect that that's how it'll be, but of course, life steps in, and everybody has to do their laundry, (laughs) so I think that I love hearing from the graduate students, and some keep in touch a lot, and some sort of uh, quietly disappear, and then you'll get a little email or something from time to time. Yeah. That, that line's awesome. Because if you're not doing your laundry, you're probably not an artist. <laughs> if, if someone else is doing your laundry, you're probably not an artist. Probably. <laughs> well, so we end every episode with what we call our quick hitters. You ready sure. for these? These are kind of either ors. First, first answer at the top of your head. Okay. Morning or night person? Uh, night. Winter or summer? Winter. Sunrise or sunset? Either. Either? Sure. Both? Either. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the day when it's the time of year where if you're getting up for the sunrise, it's it's early. You're getting up early. It's kind <laughs> of still the night before. And if you're staying for the sunset, it's late. Yeah. <laughs> you're not yeah. getting much sleep. Yellowstone or Glacier? Glacier. 
What's your favorite Montana River? Uh, well, Clark Fork here and Charles back in Boston. I grew up in Boston. Oh, the Charles. Oh, yeah. I like that. Hands down. Yeah, that's great. Did you get out on the Charles when you were young? Oh, yeah. What'd you do? Well, I biked down the Charles to go to school every day. Yeah. A couple of miles. Yeah. And then um, I, I didn't really, I, Charles is kind of, I, I didn't, no, I didn't get really get out on it. It just was um, always present. It's there, yeah. yeah it's like always it's present. an anchor for that part yeah. of Boston. And, it, and it, Yeah, it's part of our identity. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite Montana mountain range? Oh, Montana. Uh, missions. Well, if you have a non-Montana, that's good, too. Um, where I grew up, there's a mountain range called Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. Where is that? It's in Connecticut. Oh, cool. Jacob something. Anyways, we used to climb it when I was little, and you could climb up to the profile of its nose. Do you have a shadow profession, something you kind of dreamed about doing but never did? Um, no. I, I always, always wanted to be an artist. Uh, yeah. I always, yeah. I always, but looking back, there's some other things I would have been good at. Do you mm, know? Like what? Um... Uh, like something that's difficult with a big calling, you know, like, um, like I would have loved to be on those early boats for Greenpeace, you know, those early boats that would go out and watch the whaling, even though I would have hated it. I would have sort of, that's something I like things that are difficult and that's like a difficult thing I would have gravitated towards. Yeah. But I hate, I don't, I don't really like being on boats, so maybe (laughs) not, but I think there's something about that sort of pushing the envelope that would have been interesting to me. Yeah. What would your best friend say about you when asked what you were like? So she would say that I'm serious and funny, often at the same time. And she would say that I'm extremely driven and that no one should take it personally if I don't show up for dinner. (laughs) That's good. What's the one piece of music you would listen to for all eternity? Well, I think there's two different things. And one is like um, those Bach cello things, concertos, whatever those are. Like I love those. I love that solo sort of concerto. So I think that, and then I just, there's, I just love Rocket Man. Oh, wow. By Elton John. I just yeah. think that song is so spacious, right? It gives you so much room to move around in. I know those are very different, but they're both sort of about space in a way. They are. Yeah. Making space. Any chance you'd sing Rocket Man? No, not much. Okay. What's the <laughs> voice you hear in your head when you go to sleep at night? Yeah, that's such a good. That's. Uh, I mean, I think there's two, right? It depends on the day. I think that sometimes I have that um, uh, work harder, stop working hard, so hard voice. That like kind of contradiction about uh, what you're doing. Are you on the right track? Are you going somewhere? So there's sort of that voice. That's like maybe when you wake up in the middle of the night, voice like the two a.m. Like oh, geez, that yeah. voice. And then I would also say that the other voice would be like oh. So if you turned that over and you looked at the other side, then what would you do on the back? And if you turn it right, so there's sort of that visual voice about figuring out what my work should look like. Like when, you're, when your brain is going offline, it goes into the mode of problem solving yeah. and it's still, still solving that problem. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Confluence, Julia. This has been awesome. That was just such a pleasure. That was just a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was just great. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google, 
by searching Confluence University of Montana, or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the flow. I'll wash that. Mm-hmm. And say it, and say it, From and Pride say and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs>